the book of Exodus has implications for our lives, our personal lives. As we come to chapter 10, see how the Lord begins to demonstrate that he is going to completely destroy every false god and every demon god of Egypt through the representative destruction of their gods and goddesses. The Lord saw the captivity of his people, which was for a very long time, more than four centuries. And when the cup of the wrath being stored against Israel's enemies, God's enemies, was full, then God began to pour out his judgments on them. God can be counted upon to do that which is perfect in a perfect way at the perfect time. At just the right time. Christ died for us, redeemed us from the enemy that was too strong for us. He died for us even when we were helpless. The Lord keeps doing that. He keeps showing his superiority in our situation and he steps in to deliver us Moses was born following a description in Exodus in these 40 chapters and following a description of the suffering of the children of Israel particularly under a new king of Egypt who didn't know Joseph Moses was born and then he was spared during the killing of mass killing of the male babies that was born to the Hebrews that were born to the Hebrews. The Egyptian midwives, as you recall, I should say the Israeli midwives, feared God and they did not destroy the male children as heard and commanded, instructed. They went against the demands of an evil pharaoh to listen to the voice of God. And it's recorded very emphatically that God saw the faithfulness and the courage of these women to stand up for what is right in the sight of the Lord God, not to blend in with the culture of death that Pharaoh was bringing. And they were not looking to save their own skin. If they were, then they would have complied with the evil instructions of Pharaoh. Because they took a stand for the Lord, God blessed them wonderfully. They spared families who were strangers to them, although they had the kinship of being in the same Hebrew race, as it were. 
they couldn't have possibly known every single family that had a baby boy being born. But they showed mercy and compassion, and in turn, or in return, the Lord gave them households and families of their own. Houses, it says, and some interpret households. Then moving on, we see that Moses was trained by the Lord, not in the elite halls of learning and military preparation belonging to this world, but he schooled them in the unlikely, unlikeliest way for a future prophet and warrior would be trained according to human logic. God specifically stripped Moses of all of his earthly assets, all of his earthly talents, effectively, so that he can show his divine power, not only against Pharaoh, but within Moses himself, in the midst of Israel. He said, I am the Lord, your God. There's none like me. He actually said that to Pharaoh also, at a certain point, I'm the Lord. You're going to see there's none like me. Again, we refer to the scripture. In the Bible, it says the Lord is known by his judgments. You see how awesome he is from the judgments when God rises up to execute vengeance upon his enemies. You see that God is not only all-powerful, we see he's all-righteous. He's been watching. The delay doesn't mean that God has been unmindful and uncaring. But it means that the everlasting Father, our wonderful Counselor, our God, our Comforter, our Abba Father, is working something when we can't see. In the dark is working truly. And when He manifests His presence, then we see that God indeed has a plan and He had a plan and he continues with his plan all along. As Moses resisted God's call initially, he was reluctant. He was feeling absolutely inadequate for the task. And uh, the Lord worked with him. God is so wonderful, merciful. And we see the development of Moses' character at a certain point, although his brother, his elder brother, by a few years, was the Moses spokesman, and the plagues were manifested through Aaron's participation. At a certain point, you see that man who is so fearful and slow of speech, who said his tongue gets twisted when he speaks, not only is he unimpressive in his oratory or oratorical skills, is absolutely scared. 
is not able to function the way God said he should. Reminds of Gideon when the angel announced that you're a mighty man of valor. Gideon had a hard time with it. These things are not written to as many Bible teachers, unfortunately, Christians like to say, to show the frailty of the human beings and how God understands that it's okay to feel inferior. It's okay to feel some negative vibes when God speaks. It's normal. No, it's not normal. It's abnormal, and that's why God was not pleased with Moses when Moses kept giving excuses. And because Gideon put out his fleece and asked for two signs concerning the fleece, and God gave him those signs, doesn't mean that we can always find ourselves to be justified in asking for proof and evidence when once God speaks, especially when we have all these things to show us that God is always faithful. And if he speaks something that seems to be extraordinary, something that we can't comprehend or we can't participate in because of our own frailty, that doesn't change the fact that God is almighty and he's able to do what he said he would do. The reluctant prophet, at one point, having his elder brother as his mouthpiece, begins to be used by God directly to cause the plagues under God's commandment. Aaron is not involved in every situation. There's some kind of progress spiritually in development in Moses. And it's not through Moses' assertiveness and his aggressiveness, as the world would see, a certain charisma, a certain putting forth of one's authority and letting people know, marketing. No, God certified the man was the meekest person on the face of the earth, even as he grew in power. There's a corresponding proportionate increase that God expects when one is filled with the Spirit and one is evidencing the fruit of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit increases in them with gifts and supernatural abilities. God expects the corresponding increase simultaneously of the fruit of the Spirit. It's abnormal to seek one without the other. Moses is growing wonderfully. And even what he said, that I'm not able, Lord, to do this, and even after you've spoken to me, nothing's changed, so I'm not able to do what you said. We have to look at this and not simply cower and step back and say, see, Lord, even Moses had a problem. Even Gideon had a problem. So if I have a problem with what you say, Lord, then I guess it's okay. No. 
Not everything depicted in the Bible is meant for us to copy. Everything mentioned in the Bible as true narrative and historical event is true and was historical. Real history. But the real history is not meant to be copied and reproduced in our lives when it is against God's will and it's evidence of people's failure to completely trust God. The trust of the Lord God Almighty would help us to differentiate and see what a high standard we have, a high calling, and what a mighty Holy Spirit God has given us. The Comforter is the eternal Spirit of Truth, and He's Almighty, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Through the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus, His life, we're made eligible when we trust in His sacrifice for our sins to receive the Spirit of God to be an overcomer. We're not to look at the weakness and the failures of people in the Bible to say, look how such a great prophet had a problem. God says in Matthew 5.48, not do the best you can, and after you've heard the word of God and after you've heard all of the stories, after you've heard of the success of the prophets of God, that you are to imitate them in every regard, because after all, all, they're the prophets, after all, they're the disciples, and their stories are here, written and recorded forever. Therefore, emulate them in everything. God doesn't say that. He says, rather, emulate their faith. When they demonstrated faith and not unbelief, not excuses, not claiming frailty as an excuse. Because God said, as you see happening in Moses' life, as we read the Exodus story, that his strength is made perfect when we have no strength, when we are weak. God manifests his strength in the midst of our weakness. And Moses goes and begins to announce after he demonstrates those two signs that God gives, throwing his staff, his rod, which became the rod of God, the staff of God, because God came and touched him. That sign in which it became a serpent, and then when he took it by the tail, it became a staff again. And the sign of him putting his hand into his bosom, into his coat, and when he brought it out, it became leprous. And then when he put it in and brought it out again, it was restored to normal. These signs were demonstrated to the people. And then when the Pharaoh refused and said, Who is the Lord? I don't know of any God. And Moses said, The God of the Hebrews has told us. He said, I don't know anyone. This is all stories. And they're causing the Hebrew slaves to slack off in their work, so I'm going to make it harder. When the point of crisis became even more unbearable. When listening to God seems to produce more problems, the devil whispers and 
increasingly shouts in our ears that I told you following God is not going to make things better it's actually a wrong move don't follow God why do you want problems the path to the cross is not easy to believe God against our comforts and our convenience is not readily accepted with mankind but when we can see the recompense of the reward as it was written about Moses in the New Testament we can see what this is leading to by faith we can see it not in our natural eyes in our natural eyes the devil would have us look and think in a natural carnal way the things that belong to man and not of God that this looks like a dead end What's the use of believing Jesus? Look, you lost this and you're losing this. Things are getting harder. But the eyes of faith, a person of faith can see there's a reward coming because God said those who believe that God is and diligently seek Him will be rewarded. God will reward them. Moses continues. He begins to learn this more and more. To overcome the obstacles to believe. Not believe in himself but believe in the living God. Too many Christians these days adopt the world's lingo, the world's slogans, and they somehow think it's okay to believe in yourself. We're called never to believe in ourselves or trust in our own heart. hearts. The Bible says he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. We are to, we are to give thanks to God for what he's made of us and all that he's given us including the abilities. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. The Holy Spirit records in the book of James, with whom there's no variableness and no shadow of turning. It's all from Him. So, every time we think about what we can do for God, we give glory to God. Every time we think about what we cannot do for God because of some inadequacy, some weakness, and some opposition from the devil, we look beyond that and say, I choose to suffer as necessary to accomplish God's perfect will in my life because he went on this road before me and he went through the perfect suffering and gave himself perfectly to appease the Father's wrath against my life because of my wickedness and reckless disobedience. He did it all for me and he asked me to do it all for his glory, but also for my own good, for the good of many, this path of the cross. Moses steps through that threshold. He transcends that and begins to speak mightily. And he begins to be the most feared man in all of Egypt. There's a growth because he begins to meet with God, and the more he meets with God, the more there's a transformation. And he goes to execute God's plan and the plagues begin because that Pharaoh's heart becomes harder and harder just like God predicted. And after that divine encounter in Exodus 3 in that burning bush where he sees this is the great I am I'm dealing with and he's afraid and God encourages him but he tells him the way to approach me is holiness. You've got to surrender yourself so that I can work in and through you. 
and for the good of my people and for your own good. He gets past that reluctancy in Exodus 4 and he begins to step forward. In Exodus 5, we saw that the troubles increased because Pharaoh made the work even harder and the blaming comes in against God and against Moses from the children of Israel. And God says, I'm going to deliver Israel. Don't listen to what people are saying. Don't look at their faces. Don't get discouraged. I have told you. I am the Lord. This is what I'm saying to you. I will deliver Israel. I will use you. Don't worry about anything. Believe me. And so he steps forward and he does what God says. God says that I'm the God of covenant. There's a preface before the call to action on Moses' part. The God prefaces his instructions and commands by revealing who it is he's dealing with. Not only that this is the sovereign ruler of the universe, God Almighty, the all-sufficient God, El Shaddai, but he is Yahweh, the great I Am, the covenant-keeping God, who reveals himself in a more personal way and says, I am the one who revealed myself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, I've come to reveal myself to you, Moses, and to the children of Israel, that I haven't forgotten them. And I'm going to deliver them with a mighty hand against a man who's ruthless, who is possessed with the devil for, for all intents and purposes. And he's going to be more and more wrathful against my people, like a dragon. And he will seek to annihilate my people in his folly and madness. But God said, I will overthrow him. So God continues to speak and reveals who he is who it is that is speaking to them. And he tells them in no uncertain terms, regardless of what you hear and how the situation seems to be, I will do the impossible because I am the God who does the impossible. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all Moses and the Israelites had to do was to remember the tremendous supernatural miracle God did in their forefathers, beginning with Abraham. That Abraham was promised a seed, a Messiah through him, his genealogy, and would come through Isaac. And Isaac shall your seed be called when there was no Isaac. There is no ability, humanly speaking, to get an Isaac. Where do you go to get this Isaac, Lord? It's impossible for me and my wife, for my wife and I, to do anything about it. That's when God stepped in with us supernatural power it's at the end of a rope man's extremity that God's opportunity God's miracle working power comes in we're called to do it not only passively waiting until the circumstances get worse and worse but we're called to an inward surrender way before things happen externally that's all God needs to work with this and to develop us. If we pray for more faith, for more spiritual maturity, we need to see that God is calling us just to obey, trust and obey, regardless of what the weather looks like outside. 
regardless of what the weather looks like, that the devil is threatening on the inside. The feelings and our natural observations. So let's just look at me. The kingdom of God doesn't come with observation, he told his detractors. It's within you. It's in your midst. It takes spiritual eyes to see and a heart to obey. He steps in now, Moses, with Aaron and the plagues begin. And these plagues, these ten plagues, beginning with the water of the Nile and all the water that they had, turning to this blood color. The Bible says blood. The book of Joel, it says the moon shall be turned to blood. In the book of Revelation, it says as blood. Here, scientists have discovered there are organisms in the sea that when they die, the water becomes red. That water that becomes red is not only the color change, but also death is in the water. And what happens is the fish cannot exist any longer. The Bible says emphatically that because the fish died and the river stank, such a stench, you could not drink that water. He turned the water to blood, the Bible records. But the fact that it happened so suddenly at the word of Moses, the gesture of Aaron, under the command of God, it was supernatural. And all the Egyptians, Egyptian magicians, that is, that is, were able to duplicate it. They couldn't turn it back. God shows his power. And then came the frogs. And although the frogs coming from the water was also, that sign was duplicated by the magicians in Egypt. They couldn't get rid of the frogs, only God could. And the amount of frogs that came, they couldn't duplicate that. The devil would like us to think that he's almost as powerful as God. Nothing could be further from the truth. The devil is on a leash. And God has the controls. God is almighty God. You must never believe the lie of the enemy. That something's too hard for the Lord. And that the devil also has so much power. And he's doing things. He does have power. When God steps in, he flees. In the name of Jesus... In the name of Jesus, we have the victory. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, demons must flee. The devil flees at the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. For those who believe in the Almighty God, who is a true God. The gods and goddesses of Egypt were soundly, systematically defeated. These chief gods, they had many. But God said, you believe in the God of the Nile River? I'm coming to dominate that and show you there's no God over it. They can stand against me. No matter what demon power has persuaded you, there's a monopoly of, of hell upon this 
huge, long Nile River. God said, I can come and I can make it ineffective for your life. Then I can make it effective again. I can do whatever I want. So what they worshipped in the Nile River, God says, I'm above that. They had a certain deity that they observed that had the head of a frog. It was an Egyptian goddess. We're told from the research named Hecate, this goddess, so-called goddess of fertility. And uh, God came and showed, you serve a goddess that has the head of a frog, and use that very thing to come and plague you. Then I remove it whenever I choose. He defeated this so-called happy or hapi, the Egyptian god of the Nile, by turning the water into blood and then back again. He defeated this so-called Egyptian goddess of fertility. You can see this in the research of what these people who are archaeologists and historians discovered amongst all the collection, detailed collection of so many ancient records of this one superpower, Egypt, how they lived, but also how they worshipped. They had all these different demons. As it said in Romans again, that they changed the image of the incorruptible God, the holy God. They knew there, was, there has to be a God, but they multiplied it to gods and goddesses. And they gave and ascribed to these so-called deities the head of a dog and the head of a frog and they worship snakes and all kinds of evil perversions of what was supposed to be God God gave them up because they refused to acknowledge the truth and so God soundly defeated all of these gods and goddesses with plague after plague there's a showdown in which God effected effected a throwdown of all the demons of Egypt that they call gods and goddesses. Then when he brought upon the lice, defeated this certain god that they call God of the earth, these Egyptians, Geb. And he's supposed to be over the dust of the earth. God's got to take the very dust and turn it to lice and turn it back again. God showed and these three plagues God caused Moses to step forward as a progress you don't see Aaron coming but Moses himself speaking directly because something looks like that's the way it is and it's always going to be that way and even with the things of God Lord, I'm bringing my skill set, my abilities, and this what I can do is all I can do. God may say, if you keep insisting on that, you're going to limit yourself. You can't limit me. But isn't God so gracious? How many times He surprises us 
with his exceeding tender mercies, exceeding great power. His promise when he commands us to do something, he gives all the grace to do it. And even though we may not believe, he gives opportunity to trust and obey till their faith rises more and more till we get to the original blueprint what God intended. Because we failed once, to believe doesn't mean we need to continue like that. We need to deeply regret it and say, Lord, how could I ever doubt you? You are the one who proves yourself over and over and over again to me. Oh, I will do what you say, Lord. I'm learning to do what you say. The first time, I'm learning to do what you say wholeheartedly. I'm learning to see as you see that when you say it, it's good as done. I only need to do my part and keep the covenant. The power and the excellencies of God. And Jesus said, when you've done all that God has said, as the Master has said to the servant, the servant doesn't come and say, oh, Master, aren't you glad you made so many or so much profit out of me? No, I just did my job. At best we say, Lord, Master, we're unprofitable servants. Not in a negative sense. Not that we brought damage, but that all of it happened because of God's power. We never add value to God. Never. He's almighty, self-existent, Yahweh. But if we add value to ourselves, which God has prophesied, which God has caused when we believe him and cooperate with him. God soundly destroyed step by step all of these so-called great gods and goddesses. The next verse is Kepri, so-called Egyptian god of creation who controlled the movement of the sun, they say. These things are not found in the Bible, per se. But you can find that these are the things that people believed in. And anytime God acts, there's a specific purpose. There's uh, not just the superficial treatment of something. God is after Satan's seat to overthrow that rebel. Every time he tries to oppress God's people. God does things strategically. He's a God of wisdom. His wisdom is unsearchable. And when he acts, he does things thoroughly. And he does so many things that we don't comprehend, can't see, can't understand, even if we were able to see it. But the more we walk with the Lord, the more we see his greatness and how his plan only his plan is excellent. Only his blueprint for my life is fruitfulness, is fullness, deep satisfaction. It's powerful. And it is something that continues, never stops. And continues to touch many people's lives as we glorify him. That particular god, Kepri, Kepri, apparently had the head of a fly. God said, this is what you worship? 
you know, multiply swarms of flies upon your land. I'm over this thing that you call God. And I'll retract it. Total domination. God systematically destroys the Egyptian war machine as well as the Egyptian worship machine because it's all based on the father of lies, the devil. This fourth plague, he demonstrated his superiority over these so-called gods and goddesses, including the latest one that he addressed and soundly defeated. He said, this is no god. The Egyptians were trembling. And Pharaoh was so hard-hearted that he trembled here and there, but not enough. And he was getting set up, he and his army, for a massive destruction very soon. Such is the case with anyone who defies the Lord, who fails to see that God is giving me more breath than another day to surrender to him. There will come a point where I can't surrender. That's what happened to Moses, just like Judas. He ran out of grace. There is such a thing as running out of grace when God withdraws and withholds, and he has to. Because just like he won't extend grace to Satan, it's over for him. So he cannot continue to extend grace for those who are captives of the devil and then become active rebels and defy God. The more God goes, shows grace, instead of repenting because of the goodness of God, they begin to harden their hearts and do worse. That's just one point. It's enough. I'm removing you. And there's a warning in the book of Revelation. He says, make sure you do the right thing and overcome. Make sure you're zealous, you repent. Otherwise, God will remove your name out of the book of life. You can't have a removal of a name from the book of life. A book that records the people who are given eternal life and meant for eternal dwelling with God. Lord Jesus warns, if you don't do a certain thing I told you not to do, if you don't rebel, I won't blot your name out of the book of life. A clear reference to the conditionality of salvation. May we be careful. Careful as God keeps teaching that over and over again. That ultimately God's love is conditional. We must understand that. Sometimes we're slow in learning. Sometimes we repeat the same thing. We need to understand, begin to speak scripturally. Not what's popular and what we've been taught and what we feel. But what is the truth? How do we know God's love is conditional? Somebody says, but he didn't come to me placing demands on me. Is that right? Was his love and is his love? Will his love always be unconditional? Was it ever? Unconditional? There's always a condition. The Lord says, I love those who love me. Right there in the Old Testament. He says to thousands of them, thousands of generations, a thousand generations, to show mercy to those who love him. Those who hate him, those who rebel, he said to make sure he punished them down the generations. Is that love? 
Is that some arbitrary, random, capricious move of God? Whenever he feels like? No, there are clear conditions laid out. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Then I and my Father will come and live with you. There's a condition. The Lord says in John 15:14, If you do what I say, then you're my friends. It's not based on some sentiment merely, but on some action. It's a volitional thing. True love comes from the heart. There's a decision and a choice, not simply a feeling. Many people say, I love God. God says they're liars, lying through their teeth. Because they don't do what God says. God says, if you don't do what I say, you don't love me, period. If you don't love me, what makes you think that my love is going to continue upon you? That love understood as grace, common grace, as we see in Matthew chapter 5, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and good, and gives rain to the just and unjust, and so forth. There's a common grace out of God's love. But he always expects something. Not because he's selfish, but because that's the right thing. He's seeking a covenant and a relationship. The relationship that has been lost by the disobedience of our first human parents. And that continues to keep us in the dark by our disobedience and refusal of God's grace. But when we meet the condition which is repent, then God's love takes over our lives. There's a condition. There's a whole host of perversion that comes when people say, I thank you, God, for your unconditional love. And these are not people who necessarily are bad or they're seeking to pervert the doctrine. They just don't understand the implications because we need to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. When we know that we may understand what we mean when we say such things, that God came to me when I didn't deserve it, and he didn't tell me that I had to shape up and be a certain way to make the grade and then come into heaven as if I had to earn it. No. We know what we mean if we're sincere. If we should use that phrase, unconditional love of God. But we need to understand how the enemy perverts the true doctrine of God, of God's love. The conditions he places clearly when once he comes to us with his grace. We need to receive the grace, not in vain, not frustrate the grace of God. Otherwise, we will never be in His love. When He offers His love, we must take it by divorcing ourselves from the devil, by turning our backs on sin. Isn't that what God said? He didn't say, only those who become perfect will be accepted with me. No. He comes for the ungodly, but He comes to the ungodly with a condition. Awake, O you who sleep, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. There's a condition. Wake up. I can't say, well, God saved me unconditionally while I was sleeping. And I'm still sleeping, and so I'm saved. Because he loves me unconditionally. No. When God comes, he says, turn from your wicked ways. 
Then I will hear from heaven. Forgive your sin. And heal your land. Is God equal opportunity? Absolutely. Is he impartial? Absolutely. He's a just and holy and true God. Hallelujah. But let no one use that phrase especially when God reveals how much damage has been done because it conveys an unbiblical idea. It actually is a convenient vehicle for the devil to inject lies and vaccinate millions of souls against the truth that they need to repent, even Christians. Well, God came to me when I was in the dark. I was ungodly, doesn't that, isn't that what it says, Romans? Yes. In other words, we didn't invite God. He came looking for us. But that doesn't obviate and take away from the truth that when he came looking for us, he expected us to cooperate with him, which means obedience, which means and implies repentance. I can't say I'm walking with God and walk with the devil. I can't say, God, I thank you so much for loving me unconditionally and you're going to continue to love me unconditionally. No, it's a whole lie. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Period? No. That which implies a condition. Just like the word if. Might as well say, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Grace, grace, grace. Hallelujah. From heaven. So that if somebody believes, they will have everlasting life and not perish. The gospel of grace does not mean that somebody earns their salvation, but it means that they prove that their faith is genuine, that their love for God is genuine. There will, will, there will not be a single soul found in heaven who does not have real faith and real love for God. That will be readily agreed to by just about anyone who is logical and honest. Especially those who know the word of God. God's nature and character. He's holy. There will not be one unholy thing entering heaven ever. So then how can someone say that without any condition God took me into heaven? No. The condition is repent. This is why many, many prayers don't go past the ceiling because they bring in lies mixed in with the prayer. And the people that they're praying for who are stiff-necked, hard-hearted rebels like Pharaoh, abusing God's grace every day, every second, when loved ones pray for them, God loves you unconditionally. They get more empowered in their rebellion. Well, if that's the case, then I think he'll save me when he wants to save me and let him save me. No, God loves you in spite of your wickedness. But now he commands men everywhere to repent. That's the gospel. John the Baptist began to preach saying, 
repent. Jesus echoed the same thing. says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You want something to do with God? There's a condition. Looking for a rebel, seeking out a sinner who's in the dark doing evil deeds, doesn't mean we can equate that search, seeking of the Son of Man, seeking of God for our souls. We can equate that to an unconditional love as if by some magic, some mystery that it, that's what it is, what, what it comes down to. No. He seeks us while we're far away from him. But he comes to us like he did to Abraham. You walk before me and be perfect. This is what I'll do for you. Keep my covenant. This is what I'll do for you. In the Old Testament, I'm setting before you blessings and cursings, blessings and curses. According to what you desire, what you do, that's what you get. I've loved you, Israel. I carried you. You're my firstborn. On eagle's wings, I did all this for you. There's a condition. Do what I tell you to do. Then you will come into the promised land. That means salvation is conditional. If salvation is a demonstration of God's love, God's love is conditional. Is it wrong? Only the devil says it's wrong. It sounds icky. It sounds different. It sounds difficult. It sounds like not God. Which God are we talking about? If we're talking about the God of the Bible, you never see God come with an unconditional promise. Not even once. Even if people say, well, he said this is going to happen with the rainbow to Noah and he never do this. There's a condition that was met by Noah himself. He found somebody godly. Otherwise, there'd be no rainbow. Whether it's uh, an individual receiving an individual-specific promise just for himself or herself or an individual who God handpicks as a representative for a race whether it's a Jewish race or human race whether it's for the Jewish kingly lineage as he promised to David right after David after God made all these promises there shall never fail to sit a man on the throne coming from your body David I love you so much because you're a man after my own heart you love me so much he told the man called Jedediah Solomon loved of the Lord he told him outright right in the beginning right from the beginning though he appeared to Solomon gave him such a dream and such an answer to his request for wisdom just absolutely marvelous with all of the grace that God showed he came with a condition he told David and he told Solomon any of you failed to obey me there are going to be changes. If you fail to keep covenant with me, don't expect me to keep my end of the covenant with you. 
And so the gross misinterpretation from the devil regarding that verse in Second Timothy chapter 2 that is so often misquoted and I should say more specifically misunderstood, mistaught missed, misappropriated. Second Timothy chapter 2 verse 11 Would somebody please read that? As we're looking at the conditions God laid for Moses and Israel, He laid the same condition for Egypt. And we saw recently that the Egyptians who feared the word of the Lord, when God said, you leave your livestock out, I'm going to destroy them, bring them into the house. And those Egyptians who feared, they met the condition, they tasted of the grace of God. They saved their people in that particular incident. So we see God is faithful to those who are faithful to Him, not to the unfaithful. That's why people go to hell. Someone please read Second Timothy two eleven to thirteen. Second Timothy two eleven to thirteen NIV version. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we die with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Praise God. Praise God. This is the way the majority of Christians read this because they've been taught that and it suits their doctrine and their lifestyle. Because no matter what I do, as the southern preacher said, famous preacher, and I'm going to mention the name, Charles Stanley, so many decades preaching. In the early 90s, I used to videotape him, that is, through the VCR, when we had VCRs in those days. Because I was eager to know more of the Word of God as a teenager in my early 20s. And it sounded so good, and so many good things from the Scriptures he taught. And you felt the sense of encouragement. In the midst of that, he would preach this also. And I quote, you can't outrun the grace of God. You can't outrun the grace of God. And the very same man who said the difference between an adulterer and Christian adulterer is the Christian adulterer gets to go to heaven while the adulterer who's not born again goes to hell. It just gets worse and worse. And yet you don't see that at the forefront of the ministry or the many sermons but it gets injected there. These are things we heard with our own ears from his preaching. What happens? What is the result of this? Why mention this? As Paul mentioned, Hymenaeus, Philetus, as he mentioned, Alex, Alexander the Coppersmith, Hermogenes, 
various people. He said, watch out, there's a doctrine coming in there, be careful. He named the names. There might have been people who said, oh, don't mention his name, don't do that. Why are you divisive? Why don't you just talk about the doctrine and don't mention the names? No, the Holy Spirit mentions names sometimes. So people's eyes can open wide and they can begin to discern as they hear. Too often, not only are we superficial, but we have an agenda that we want to not concede to the truth, the whole truth. When the truth unveils that something's seriously wrong and something we trusted in so much, we thought it's so well received and accepted by many people and the effect is deadly. As we hear this in Second Timothy eleven thirteen, and Charles Stanley's not alone in that. Various big names teach the same thing. They have it in their commentaries and their sermons and radio programs. Listen to this. Second Timothy two eleven to thirteen, as we just heard read. I'll read it again, the New King James Version. This is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. That is a condition of salvation right there. If we died with him, reckon yourself therefore dead indeed unto sin, and alive unto God, alive to righteousness. They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. There's a condition to prove whether we're really disciples of Jesus. If the proof and the evidence are not there, we don't get to go into heaven. God will not identify us as one of his sheep, but rather goats. Next, if we endure, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. Which means if we don't endure, we're not going to rule and reign with him. We won't be there in heaven because only overcomers and only those who will reign will be in heaven. If we deny him, what will God do? Unconditionally love us? No. He said, I'll deny you. Peter denied Jesus, somebody says. Why? He denied him three times, not even once, just once. Three times he did it. Back to back. What happened to Peter? Didn't God's unconditional love veil him up every time he denied him? Didn't Peter become such a mighty force in the early church? And Isn't Peter in heaven? Yes. But he met a condition God laid out. Repent. The Lord said, when you were converted, Satan has desired to sift you, Simon, Peter, like wheat. I prayed for you that your faith doesn't fail. Well, God prays. Jesus prays for us. But there comes a point when God says, I can't do anything for somebody. A particular person or persons because they've exhausted all the grace I have to offer. Not that God is incapable, but they refuse and they cast down every gesture of love that I showed toward them. And I have nothing left to do. That's why the horror stories of people dying, there's no chance to repent. The person who dies without repentance will surely go to hell. There's no purgatory. 
if we deny him, we also deny us. If one continues to deny him, Peter did not continue. He wept bitterly and he repented thoroughly. Otherwise, God would have shut him out of the kingdom. God is not partial. You just play favoritism. You say, well, for you, you have to obey every word I say. And for you, you can do about 30%. I'll let you slide. He's a holy God. God is not a man that he should lie. If we deny him, he will also deny us. There are people who profess the power of godliness, but they deny that same power. They profess orthodox doctrine. I believe the Bible. I love Jesus. He's the only way, the truth, and life. I don't have any other idols in my life. But they deny the power of it in their life. How? By disobedience. What? A man confesses, a woman confesses, a child confesses with the mouth. Must have a corresponding truthfulness in the heart. Because salvation happens when the mouth confesses that Jesus is Lord and the heart believes unto righteousness. Because of the belief in the heart, from the heart that God raised him from the dead. There's an action there. There's a corresponding lifestyle change. If any man be in Christ, is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things will become new. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Notice very carefully the next verse. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Just on the basis of the most basic reading comprehension skills of anyone anywhere even if somebody thinks well I have a controversy with your doctrinal beliefs about verse 13 just looking at verse 12 should clarify any ambiguity perceived ambiguity if anyone reading verse 13 and saying well According to this, you see, and how many times have I heard this? Hardly ever heard the truth concerning this. Because people love to play Christian. They say, well, God says that if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. You see that? Even when I am not faithful to God, God is faithful to me. God shows his grace many times over and over again when we're faithless, if we're faithless or unfaithful to him. He does. But let no one ever equate that with some doctrine that it has to be the case forever because it is a gross mistake, a fatal mistake. To say that because God came to me when I cheated on him I spurned his love and went after other idols other lovers I went back to the devil by doing what the devil said to do with my body with my mind with my spirit I began to lie a little bit cheat a little bit put on a little show uh, all the time I was backsliding but I covered up really good and I smiled and I shouted hallelujah and I prayed I had tears coming down my eyes I clapped I kneeled I did all kinds of things 
and everybody thought I was a good Christian. And I really wanted to convince myself, even though I knew the truth deep down inside. I was turning into a snake against the very holy God, loving God. But I heard the preacher say, and I read it for myself, even when I'm unfaithful, God remains faithful. Because he can't deny himself. He's just too good, you see. He's just so loving and so faithful that no matter what I do, he will always be faithful to me. Why? Because one day I got married to him at the altar. And I said to the Lord, I do. When the Lord covenanted to protect and cherish me and take care of me. Now I cheated on him and I can continue to cheat on him. And he will remain faithful to me because he can't help it. He's just bound by his uh, nature and character. He's got to be faithful, you see. And that's why you'll have a whole bunch of people going to heaven who are dirty, rotten scoundrels who cheated on God and they died in the midst of the act. But God is faithful and that's why he's got to bring them into heaven. Because even if they try to dissolve the marital bonds with God, God will not. You see the implications of this? Nonsensical, diabolical doctrine from the pit of hell. But if somebody were to say, well, I don't understand what the word faithful means there and faithless and cannot deny himself. and It's just, all I know is God is there for me when I cry out to him. He won't always be there when you cry out to him. If you presume upon his grace continually, that's the truth. The book of Proverbs it says wisdom will cry to people to say repent basically turn to God turn you at my reproof when I correct you be wise don't go the way of destruction listen to me you'll have prosperity you'll have everlasting life wisdom is the tree of life but wisdom personified says there will come a time when those who refuse to listen to me doesn't matter if it's a Christian or non-Christian. Begins to be disobedient. There's a pattern of that. Wisdom says, speaking for God, you will also cry one day and I won't hear you. I will mock you. In Psalm 2 we see that. The people thought they can want themselves against God and resist His grace and do despite unto the Spirit of grace. God says, I'll have them in derision. I'll scoff at them. Pharaoh and all the Egyptians thought we can compete with God. God utterly humiliated them and destroyed them in the Red Sea. There's a condition. There's always been a condition. Always will be a condition. If we expect God to be faithful, you see, He's faithful to His character and that's what it means in verse 13 doesn't mean that no matter what we do, he'll be faithful to us. No. If the prodigal son never came to his senses and went with the grace of God that opened his eyes in his foolishness and filth, if he never had that true penitence to say, I'm going to go humble myself before my daddy. I played the fool, daddy. I sinned against heaven against you. I don't deserve anything. I'm just coming back to see if you have something for me. I'm leaving my pigsty. That father that was longing for that son with all the love that he had would have never had a son back. There would have been an eternal separation. The parable is speaking of the Heavenly Father. 
and sinners, especially those who knew God, who presume upon God's grace and think that, well, he'll always bail me out. No, he won't. That's why hell is full of people who had a false grace teaching, who believed in unconditional salvation, which is life from the pit of hell. And even if one were to say, verse 13 is kind of ambiguous to me, or this is not what I've heard from my favorite, most favorite and learned theologians and preachers, my pastor who loves me and who speaks lovingly to me, and they do house visiting and hospital visiting, do a lot of charity. Why? Look at his gray hair and look at his demeanor and he's so loving and kind. And anytime I want to volunteer to do something, he's just so gracious and encourages me. I feel right at home with my pastor. And he told me, God loves you. Just warmed my heart. When nobody took me in, he took me and my boyfriend in and encourages to really think about marriage while we're fornicating. Such a loving pastor. Even my own family wanted to throw us out. But this pastor's so kind. He said he really ought to think about marriage, you know. And he let us fornicate for two whole years by going to all of his Bible studies and listening to him and volunteering the church and desecrate the whole place. He's a great guy. And he's the one so full of love, just like the Heavenly Father. What a father's heart he has. He said, look at God's nature. He said in Second Timothy 2.13, if you're faithless, he remains faithful. Aren't you glad? Amen, amen. Because he can't deny himself. He can't help it. He's just faithful. He's just faithful. No matter what you do, he's faithful. He'll bail you out every single time. That's what Judas thought when he went into the garden and had the audacity to say, with a kiss, so to speak, my master, you miss me? I want to show you how much I love you in front of all these folk. I brought some company with me. They have some clubs to beat you on the head and to arrest you. And I'm going to kiss you. I hope I can fool you, Master. I know you're faithful. Even when I'm unfaithful, I'm going to make it. I got a little derailed here. I wanted some money. And it did take me to betray you, Master. But I love you to death. And I know you forgive me because you've been forgiving me. I was a thief and you knew it. And somehow I have this warm feeling that you're such a great person. You forgive me. He was deceived by the very devil who came to him with some false teaching. He possessed him. And you know what Jesus said? He didn't say, you dirty, rotten scoundrel. How dare you do this? What do you think I am? He said, friend, friend, do you betray the son of man with a kiss? You think you're fooling me? You're coming as if everything's okay and giving me a kiss, as if you're my faithful disciple. And you brought men with you to destroy my life, to hand me over to death. Have you come to betray innocent blood, friend? God is not mocked. 
He's a holy God. Even if someone were to say, my favorite preacher and everything I've heard and everything I know says that God is faithful even when I'm faithless. And the proof of it is, how many times did he bail me out when I didn't deserve it? And because of that, it's the premise you see. It's a presupposition and it's a logical conclusion that I can extract out of this experience of mine that no matter what I do, you can't outrun the grace of God. He'll come after you. See, you signed the contract one day. You got married at the altar. He's going to pursue you and if he has to get you in a headlock and tie you up and take you to heaven, well, he's going to do that. You know why? Because he's faithful. You see the absurdity of this and how it actually plays out in real life and people's thinking and the behavior which is a recipe for disaster spiritually. It's a fatal mistake. Even if someone were to say, I don't understand verse 13 the way you're explaining it. What does verse 12 say? The last half of it. If we deny him, he will deny us. Peter denied him and he stopped almost immediately after those three times in that same night, same dawn. He wept bitterly. Never did it again. He would have remembered what he did and he was more fiercely loyal to the Lord. He didn't think. God is faithful. He knew I was weak and I did this. No, he knew no matter what excuse he can give for disobedience and denying God he had to repent thoroughly for it in order to be accepted with God this should put the fear of God in us immediately drive us to be very careful how we walk with God not out of fear that we're going to fall but out of reverence and awe for God who does not play games with anyone David would have gone to hell, much as God said, he's a man after my own heart, if he remained in adultery without repenting. God is not mocked. He doesn't change the standard for people from person to person. Without holiness, no man will see the Lord. No one. Hebrews twelve fourteen. So, verse 12 of Second Timothy 2 and we say, well, what does this have to do with Exodus and why are we... Well, this is a devotional exposition. And where the Lord wants to touch something to dispel darkness in some perverted doctrinal understanding that we may have picked up to save us. He shows us just like he gave Moses a condition. How do we know that? Moses was called by God. Moses was encouraged so much by God. Moses was dealt with God so patiently and God made provision even when the guy didn't believe. This man who became a shepherd from being a prince and felt totally bankrupt socially with the ability to go and face Pharaoh or his own people. Somebody might say he worked with the man after all of that commission, all of the encouragement, all the prophecy that you're going to go and deliver my people, Moses, God almost killed him on the way 
because he failed to keep covenant. He didn't circumcise his son. Abraham was given the condition with the word if you do this. All the way down to David and Solomon. Right here in the New Testament, lest anyone should say, speaking for the devil, being his mouthpiece. Oh, but that's the Old Testament. God says right here, at the close of the Apostle Paul's life, speaking by the Spirit of God, having a successful, powerful ministry, approved by God. The man who could say, I've fought the good fight of faith. I've finished my course. Henceforth is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord will give, not to me only, but to all those who do what? Meet a condition. Love him. Which means, obey him and follow him. That Paul says, if we deny him, Timothy, young pastor, and anyone, if we deny him, there's a continuation of that denial, no repentance, he will deny us. The Lord Jesus Christ said, if you don't forgive others, after all the gospel I preached to you, and this goes for his very own disciples, including those in the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, everyone, same standard. If you don't forgive other people, my Heavenly Father will not forgive you. What does that mean? They're going to go into heaven being unforgiven? It's impossible. An unforgiving heart jeopardizes a person's salvation. There's a condition. You've got to continue to do what God says. Obedience is a condition that must be met by anyone who make it into heaven. Moses learned that. The Israelites learned that. Pharaoh learned that. You disobey, you pay. And the payment becomes an eternal hell if there's no repentance from that course of disobedience. This is a true doc doctrine. We see in Exodus, Genesis, the Pentateuch, in the law, in the prophets, in the historical books, in the poetic books, the Gospels, the book of Acts, Paul's 13 epistles, and the general epistles, the book of Hebrews, which some may call outside of the general epistles and some don't, all the way to the book of Revelation. To the point where at the very end of Revelation, the Lord says this, I'm coming back, not with overwhelming grace for my elect and my beloved, the ones I predestined to greatness and glory, and I'm just coming to shower them and take them over with unconditional love, and when, no matter what they did, they're all coming in, because one day, they stood at the altar and signed on the dotted line and said, I'm going to be married to you, Lord, forever. He said, I'm going to give to everybody, not according to what they say, but what they do. And he outlined seven churches. We need to determine which one of those churches represents us. And if we are not obedient, not repentant, to get on it immediately before it's too late. Oh my God. 
That's what people say a lot of times. Oh my God. Horror. Because somebody died. And they knew. A person was playing games with God. There's an instinctive trepidation and trembling within the heart. What does that sneaky devil do? Bring preachers and Christian friends and Facebook postings and all such nonsense to convince that person who's horrified deep down and inside they know something's not right. They know how could the person go to heaven if they ended up in sin. But they have enough of this inoculation from these satanic vaccination to make them get that comfort more and more and get into delusion there. After all, don't you know your loved one is safe in heaven because according to Second Timothy 2, 11 to 13, God is faithful. God is faithful. No matter what, Jesus said in John chapter 10, My Father is greater than I. And no one can pluck one of his sheep, one of you, out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Does God contradict himself? Or is it possible that anyone in the Father's hands can walk away from the Father and forfeit themselves to the wolf? Didn't the Lord Jesus say to Satan, it is written, when he said, jump from the temple, doesn't the word say, his angels will give, will be given charge over you to keep you in all your ways, they'll catch you in their hands, you don't have to dash your foot against a stone. It's the promise of God. He's faithful, Jesus, just jump. You'll be all right. He said, I should not tempt the Lord to God can be spiritually fatal permanently it's always spiritually fatal the Egyptians learned that every god and goddess that they had represented by at least ten of them when God confronted them head on it was a great power he just decimated their whole demonic religious structure and especially with the final plague we'll read soon because Pharaoh himself was held as a god as the greatest god and he destroyed him too finally by destroying his firstborn and then his whole army and Pharaoh himself no wonder it's written, God delivered his people with an outstretched arm, with a mighty hand. He said, watch what I'm going to do. Oh, God, why'd you do this? Moses, look what's happening. Things are getting worse. God said, hold on. And they saw, and they began to fear. And as we learned recently, God made a difference in protecting his own people. The truth, it is the truth. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. 
May the Lord, by His Holy Spirit, help each one of us to know the whole truth and nothing but the truth and say, Lord, I'm going to be in on the truth. I'm going to be on the side of truth, Lord. No matter if I face opposition by the hundreds and thousands and millions and billions, no matter if I get kicked out of certain religious circles and if friends hate me and if people have all kinds of questions, well, what about this guy who committed suicide and that one who overdosed and that one who was caught in this and died like that? And Lord, when you want me to speak, let me be faithful to speak the truth, nothing but the truth. When you want me not to speak because it will be pigs to whom the pearls will be desired. And when I give them the truth, they'll turn and rip me up, try to hurt me. You don't want that to happen at that juncture. Help me not to speak prematurely. Help me not to speak carnally. Help me to know the truth, hold the truth, treasure it, and give it and dispense it when you want and the way you want. Never be afraid to do it when you tell me to do it, regardless of the cost. This is how the Lord Jesus modeled faithfulness to the Father. This is how we must obey God and walk in the same path to show our loyalty to the Lord. Always remember every promise of God is conditional. Somebody had to obey sometime. There's a condition that was met. God was going to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah if you couldn't find how many? Ten righteous? And he couldn't find it. The condition wasn't met. He wiped it out. God was going to wipe out the whole human race. And he wiped out almost the whole human race because he found somebody met the, condi met the condition. Noah found grace in God's sight. He's a man perfect in his generations. God would have destroyed the whole generation of Israel and started a brand new race, brand new nation with Moses. But he found two people who met the condition. to go into the promised land of all the adults above 20 years old Joshua and Caleb and he found in his mercy a generation of youngsters who didn't partake in their father's sins at that time and those children made it to the promised land but he did wipe out the entire generation except for Joshua and Caleb The fear of God tells us and the truth of God that certain things are irreversible. Irreversible. And you see that God is not partial. Even with Moses whom he spoke face to face because he missed going to the promised land. The land that so long he was looking forward to. All he could do is view it from the plains of Moab or the mountain from Mount Nebo on the other side of the Jordan, just look at it, knowing he's not going to enter in. 
And so it continues today. Those who don't fear the Lord, they don't take the warnings and they go to hear preachers and teachings and commentaries and their own notes, their own thinking of what seems to make sense to them while they're rebellious and help other people rebel against God in various ways. Some of the most soft-spoken, humble-looking, sweet people who has Pharaoh living in them. And God says, repent. They say, oh, no, 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 no. God understands I'm just a sinner saved by grace, flesh and bone and skin. I'm going to always sin until I get to heaven. One day, I'll be perfect, free from all of these demons. I love Jesus, you see. I'm afraid that's not the Jesus of the Bible who can deliver you from demons. And if you do and have known the Jesus of the Bible who delivered you from the demons, if you don't continue to walk in the freedom by simply abiding in Jesus, obeying Him, fearing Him, understanding that though He is the tender-hearted Son of God, He is Almighty God Himself, the condition never changes. The ones who are faithful, they exhibit a proof which is they keep my word. They obey my voice. They don't play games. They don't seek to hide things from the shepherds, hide things from other people, other Christians. They don't let things fester inside. The same things that they hear preached don't have bitterness, unforgiveness. They don't deal with it. They think, oh, I've heard this a thousand times. Look, I'm still alive. Still can drive my car. I still go to work. Still can have my hobbies and I'm okay. I, I have some things to deal with probably, but I'll get around to sometime next year. If they should die, the Bible said they go to hell. With unforgiveness, you can't go to heaven. That's how serious it is. But when people play games and they get so casual with the Word of God, it can be a very deadly venture. This is preaching that must be heard if we are to keep in the righteous path without being deceived. The Apostle John said as we close, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Why? So you can have a theological degree and show that I'm of this school and that school and this school of thought and I'm learned over here. I can debate and I have philosophical points on this and I teach and lecture in classes and college campuses and I have this ministry and that. No. You should know the truth and the truth shall make you free, set you free. You won't be, you won't be the bonds of the devil anymore. He won't be able to control not a single inch of your life because you're walking in the light obeying God his plagues continued and with all the time God gave Pharaoh to repent the more grace was shown by virtue of time and the intensity of the plague to make him stop fighting God as God predicted because of the man's choice not because God made him a robot to control is evil, real evil. He ended up just like God said. Destroyed from the face of the earth.
in every book of the Bible, we see the evidence of God's grace, tremendous grace and love. As you know, he came looking for us, not the other way around. He brought grace to us and gave us the gift of faith. And all he says is, use it. You got to use it because I created you in my image. You have a choice. You won't be forced to love and forced to go to heaven. If you love me, abide in me. Jesus said that, just like I did with my father. So I expect you to do the same thing. And in the book of Exodus, we see the same thing. God speaks to us about redemption, deliverance from bondage, from slavery, all the way to glory. We have a glimpse of salvation experience in the book of Exodus. We have a narrative of redemption and deliverance. And we have a legislative portion where God gives the law. He gives instructions on how to approach me and how to worship me. God saves us from prison and we come out. We don't know what to do. He gives us identity. And he tells us, this is how you live free. I made you free. Now this is how you stay free. This is how you please me. This is how we can have the relationship. This is how you can go all the way back to paradise with me. Hallelujah. From the guttermost to the uttermost. From being among the dunghill, the garbage pile, to come and sit with the princes of God, counted among his princes and princesses. What a salvation. Blessed be God's name. May the Lord help each one of us to observe the scriptures carefully. Interpret the scriptures according to the revelation of the Holy Spirit, consistent with the rest of scripture. Allow scripture to interpret scripture and then make application in our personal lives to obey God's voice, to trust and obey. That's the simple method of true Bible study and understanding the truth. Unbiased, sincere observation with a desire to do what? Do what God said, what we learn, what the Spirit of God teaches. Observation. Secondly, interpretation. Not only see what happened in the context, just as we do in our church-wide devotionals that the Holy Spirit gave, is actually a theological these are theological principles that can be shrouded sometimes in fancy language and academic jargon. But bottom line is, observe what it says as it is. What is God saying? Next, interpret it with other scriptures and by the Holy Spirit, depending upon the Lord with an intent, sincerely, Lord, whatever you say for me to do, I'm going to do, Lord, by your grace. Then put it to work, make application. God's grace comes in the truth revealed from heaven. We receive it, not in vain, but humbly, with an intent to follow the Lord, the God of love. And then we get to work to do what he says. That's how we got saved. We didn't earn it, but the grace of God was revealed among men. 
We received it. We believed it. We did something about it and included repentance, turning away from evil by the grace of God. But we had to do our part and then follow Him. And that's how salvation is maintained. By continuing to be faithful to God. And that's how we enter heaven finally. By enduring faithfully to the end. Shall we pray? Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your truth. Thank you, Lord. Almighty King, I thank you, Lord, for taking us on this excursion, Lord, this direction to explain, Lord, your truth that saves the whole truth and nothing but the truth regarding the very sobering revelation that your salvation that you offer is conditional and how people misuse the phrase of God's unconditional love and end up doing a lot of damage to themselves many times and certainly to, certainly to many others as we see happening. Lord, you've taught us how the fact that you came looking for us without placing a condition of how perfect we must be before you seek us out must not be confused and must not detract from or pervert the truth that your salvation is conditional from start to finish. From the moment we believe and receive you into our hearts to the moment we go to be within heaven. It's dependent upon our obedience to your voice. You will not have rebels in heaven. It's conditional. You seeking out the lost and saving the ungodly while they're ungodly does not equate to an unconditional salvation by any means. But equates to equal opportunity. God so loved the world, the world full of sinners, which included us, that you gave your Son as a ransom for our souls through his very blood. If we believe, which means we obey and follow, will be saved. If not, we'll perish. Lord, I thank you for showing us it doesn't even make sense to even include the term unconditional to describe how you come to us when we don't meet any condition except that we're sinners. Because that one mention can introduce much confusion and heresy. Rather, we should say, God loved me with such an incomparable, inimitable love anywhere in the universe. Came from his heart to come and seek me out while I was a sinner. And he came with conditions of peace when I was at war with him. Conditions of love, of a marriage covenant contract that I may return to him. 
what was lost in the Garden of Eden. God wants to restore my life. And I have the privilege of proving my love for him who loved me first by meeting the conditions which is obedience to his voice. His commandments. Thank you, Lord, for showing us the way very clearly. And I pray that this truth will give great joy to those who love you of a truth. And that, Lord, we'll be able to rescue many people, O oh God, who are caught in such convoluted falsities, Lord, falsehood, using the very scriptures that are meant to sober us up and keep us saved, to save us and keep us saved. What a joy when we can walk uprightly before you and have a clear conscience, be able to speak out of the truth lived, truth received and lived, truth observed, properly interpreted and properly applied to our own lives to give other people that glorious best life in Christ Jesus as we abide in you. Thank you, Lord. God, I thank you, Lord, in spite of walking uprightly with you, Lord, when we seek especially to do your will and to follow after you, Lord, and see how the enemy comes to oppress and hurt. And pray, Lord, that we would experience, Lord, God who gave us truth and life, more freedom as the days go by. You've promised it. Be led forth with peace and joy, free from all the burdens. You heard the groaning of people under the Pharaoh. You brought them all the way, Lord, step by step to glory. I thank you. You are faithful to complete what you started. And we remain faithful to you. You will never deny those who deny you. But those who confess you with the mouth and with their deeds from the heart your righteous ways, you will also confess before your Father in Heaven, our eternal, faithful High Priest and Advocate. Thank you, praise you, Lord, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.